So, Father God, now would you speak to us from your word? I pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take root and produce great fruit. Use me, Lord God, to encourage and bless your people. And, Lord God, would you change someone's life today? Would you reroute someone's destiny today, we pray? In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you have your devices, please take them out. Click on your Bible apps and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're new with us, we have been matriculating our way through the epistle of 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and we have called it Exiles Passing Through Without Passing By, Exiles Passing Through Without Passing By, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, pick me up in verse 1, we're going to look at the first six verses today in our time of study around God's Word. Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality. So when he talks about Gentiles here, he's talking about behaving like unsaved folk behaved. Here's how they behave. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, verse 4, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The reading of the Word of God. Thanks be to God. God has not created you to live an average, ordinary, or mainstream kind of life. I'll say that to you again. God has not created you to live in average, ordinary, normal, mainstream kind of life. I don't know about you, but the God I serve is an extraordinary God. And this extraordinary God is calling all of us to live extraordinary lives. God does not want us to live as caterpillars, but he wants us to live and fly like butterflies. Whenever you look at a butterfly, you know what you're looking at? Change. Whenever you look at a butterfly, you are looking at change defined and personified. No such thing as being a butterfly if you haven't gone through something, if you haven't changed. In fact, scientists tell us that butterflies represent the most drastic change in the natural realm. You know how this works. They start off as as caterpillars, and let's just call it what it is. Caterpillars ain't the cutest thing in the world. 
They're these creepy, crawling things that inch their way around and nothing really special or cute about them. They eat leaves, they crawl on trees, and then one day they start dangling from cocoons. In fact, scientists actually say that when a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, the enzymes in that, cat- in that caterpillar, they, they literally start to digest themselves. And the change is so radical that when it emerges, you would never know what it was because the aftershot is so dra- drastically different from the before shot. So to look at a butterfly is to look at Transformation. It is to look at change, and everything has changed. Its eating has changed. As a caterpillar, it munched on leaves, but now as a butterfly, it sips nectar. Its mobility has changed. As a caterpillar, it crawled around, but, but as a butterfly, it, it now flies. Its altitude has changed. It has gone from ground zero to now hovering in the air above flowers. To see a butterfly... It's to see change. What's true of butterflies now is supposed to be true of Christians. If you're a Christian, you should be the picture of change. But the problem is we have too many so-called butterflies who are still living like caterpillars. We have too many people who, who say they've been changed, who, who say they are Christians, but are, are not really living drastically different than who they were prior to Christ. It's like my grandmama used to say, to be a Christian means you've shown enough changed. That when people see the before and after shots, before Christ and after Christ, there should be a sense, in fact, Peter talks about in our text, in which they take a double take. Because you've changed. Now, this doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've stopped sinning. Lord, have mercy. We will sin until Christ calls us home. To be a Christian does not mean you're sinless. And yet, the more you mature in Christ, the more you should sin less. Did you get that? To be a Christian does not mean you're sinless, but what sanctification, this journey of salvation means, the more Christ speaks to me and grows me, I should sin less. So that every Christian should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their journey with Jesus and conclude, I haven't all the way arrived, and yet, at the same time, I'm not all the way where I once was. He's changing me. If you're the same selfish, self-centered husband you were 20 years ago and ain't nothing changed, I think you have theological justification to beg the question, am I truly saved? How can we claim to have the spirit of God living inside of me? Yet I'm still the same hellraiser I was a decade ago. To be a Christian means to be changed. Now we're ready to unpack 1 Peter because as we've been walking through this series in 1 Peter, you've been hearing me say it week in and week out. The key word for the whole book of 1 Peter is, is the word exile. 
And we've unpacked it. Peter is writing in a language called Greek. The Greek word for exile literally means the close stranger. And we've said that the closest English equivalent that we have for the term exile is really the word immigrant. It is a person who lives geographically close. They may live on your street. And yet the more you hang around them, the more you hear them talk, the more you observe their cultural preferences, practices, and norms, the more you realize that even though they live here, they're not from here. To be an exile, spiritually speaking, means we live here on earth, but there should be something that just kind of effervesces from our life in which people look at us curiously and say, you ain't from here. You're different. And you can answer by saying Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, my citizenship is in heaven. Yes, I live here, but ultimately I'm from another place. I've been saved by the grace of God and my allegiances are in heaven and not here on this earth. I'm different. Just last night. Just last night, um, th- some new neighbors moved in right next door to us, and, um, and, and my, my, my wife and I uh, took a beverage o- over to their house just to kind of welcome them, um, and um, um, we, 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 we took it over there, and, and we're interested in beginning a relationship with them. Now, we're not going to come through with the Bible in our hands and, you know, day one, don't know these people and let's do a Bible study together. We just want to form a relationship with them. And as we love on them, here's the hope. The hope is that they they look at us and they say in some way, shape or form, that's different. Not that that's better than. We don't act like we're better than people. We don't act all haughty and arrogant. And we're not leading with kind of um, what we do or what we don't do. We just want to lead with love. And we want to love on them. And in the process of loving on them, the prayer is, God, that they would see something appealing, attractive, and different in our lives. This is what it means to be exiles here in this earth. It means that, yes, we can enjoy certain things. But at the end of the day, we don't become so enamored with this life that we allow this life to be our ultimate home. It's not our home. We're just passing through. And while we're passing through, may we display the glory of God. In fact, that's what I want you to see. As we inch our way to this text, here's what I want you to understand here. The punchline, hear it now for Christians, the punchline is not to be different. We are different for a purpose, and that purpose is to radiate and display the glory of God, not the condemnation of God, not the judgment of God, but we want to be different because we follow a different one, God, and he's put his different spirit in our lives, and so we are different, but What is different about us is to display the glory of God so that if you're a student and you walk into class, people somehow, some way get a glimpse of what God looks like when you take your notes and study for tests. If if you're a barista at the local Pete's or or Starbucks and people get a glimpse of what God looks like when you wait on people and fill their orders. If you're a computer programmer, people get a glimpse of what God looks like when you do your your work so that whatever you do, Paul says, whatever it is, whether you eat or drink, may it all be done for one punchline, the glory of God. So I'm different because I want to display God's glory 
in all of the realms of life. So here's the main idea of our text. It's the main idea of 1 Peter. It's the main idea of our text. To be a Christ follower is to be different. To be a Christ follower is to be different. Now, unlike any other passage in 1 Peter, our passage, Peter is going to really drill down into this concept of what it means to be different. In fact, he's just going to unpack for us three specific ways in our text Christians are to be different. We're to have a different worldview. Here's the table of contents for this message. We're to have a different worldview. We're to live for a different purpose. And we're to have a different conduct. Let's unpack it quickly. Look at what he says again in verse 1. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, arm yourselves, arm yourselves. Again, he's writing in Greek. This phrase, arm yourselves, in the Greek, it literally means to equip. Peter is saying, I want you to be equipped. I, I, I want you to get outfitted with what you need. By the way, this is why you come to church. You come to church, yes, to worship God. You come to church, yes, to pray, yes, to praise him. But you should also come to church to get equipped with what you need. Okay, this is an equipping station. The battle is out there. So you need to come in here at least once a week to get outfitted with what you need to live for him out there. This is not the ultimate thing. So the goal, the goal of your life should not be, oh, if I can just get to church on Sunday. Oh, if I can just get to church on Sunday. No, 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 no. Church is the huddle. We've been talking a lot about that. This is where the play gets called. This is where things get announced. This is where you get equipped so that you can be unleashed. At the end of our service, we're going to say you are sent so that you can get sent out there. So when he says arm yourselves, he's saying, Christian, I want you to be equipped. By the way, it's an imperative, which means a command. Peter is saying, I am commanding you to get equipped. Watch what he says with the same way of thinking. Here it is. Peter says, I want you to be equipped in your minds. It's very interesting. In a couple of verses, he's going to deal with our conduct. He's going to tell us some things to do and not do. But before he gets to our conduct, he addresses our mind. You see the progression. The implication here is, whatever has your mind has your conduct. Whatever has your thoughts has your conduct. Let me say it this way. Hear it. The mind is the platoon leader of the body. Give it to you again. The mind is the platoon leader of the body. See it in its progression. Peter says, we're going to deal with your conduct. Before I get to deal with your conduct, I want you to be equipped in your thinking. Why? Because thinking feeds behavior. So I want, you to, I want you to be equipped here. It's interesting. I, um, uh, Cormac and I were part of a church in Memphis called Fellowship Memphis. And one of our members there, um, he caught my eye right, right, right away. He, he, um, he talked very slowly and deliberately. Um, it would take him sometimes 30 seconds to even begin to answer a question. Uh, at the same time, you, you notice a long scar running down his head. After about five or six conversations with him, I, I finally just pressed in and I asked him, well, what happened? And, um, and he said to me, he said, I'm a Marine. 
and I was fighting in Iraq, and um, the Iraqi forces kind of had uh, me and my, platoon, and my platoon hemmed in uh, behind some bunkers. They were firing at us, and we were kind of crouched down, and my platoon leader gave me the order to return fire. And he says, as soon as I stood up, I got shot in the head. He says, it's a miracle, I'm living. And he says, I've been through eight surgeries. They thought I was going to die several times. Then I asked him this question. I, I, I said, so you knew you were going to get shot when you stood up? He says, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, did it ever cross your mind when your platoon leader gave the order not to send? He says, absolutely not. He says, when the platoon leader tells you, you do it. The platoon leader tells you, you follow. What the platoon leader is to the soldier, the mind... It's to the body. So that what Peter is dealing with here is this idea of worldview. <laughs> He's saying, I want you to put on a different set of glasses. Monique, I know you're taking pictures right now. This will not go on social media. Um, <laughs> He's dealing with the issue of worldview. I look funny right now, don't I? I look different. I look different. That's the point. To be a Christian means you've been given a different set of lenses. That is to stand out from culture. To be a Christian means to think and see everything through the lens of Scripture. It means what informs me ultimately is not Fox News. What informs me ultimately is not MSNBC. What informs me ultimately is not the Clinton News Network, CNN. Did I cover them all? I think I did. We've got to stop letting CNN... Fox News, Megyn Kelly, MSNBC, discipling us more than the Bible. Yes, I might preach the rest of the sermon in this glasses, but listen to me. The Bible is clear. Take your mind seriously. Your mind shapes your worldview. Write down Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does he say? Change happens in my body when it first happens in my mind. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He says in verse 1, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And then he says these words, Set your mind, set your mind, set your minds on things above. Now here's a lie from the enemy. If you've got teenagers like I do, you know it is a lie. Teenagers like to say, I said it to my folks, you know, you deal with issues like music. And in my day, it was Ron DMC. It was, you know, LL Cool J. It was all that stuff. Now it's, it's Kendrick Lamar. It's Future. It's Drake. I'm tapping out because that's all the modern day hip hop I know because I don't think modern day hip hop's that good. But anyways, um, listen, listen. Young people, it's a lie because what you want to say is, what the enemy wants to tell you is, what you listen to doesn't really matter. I'm not really listening to the lyrics. Well, hear me. You can't listen to Drake all day, a day. You can't listen to future 24-7 and then wonder why you're living in sin. 
so that Peter says, I need you to take your mind seriously. Get equipped in your thinking. Why? Because the Bible gives us a totally different way to see it. So here the application. The application is, the Bible gives me, you know, when, when, when my wife and I were dating. You know, it's a, it's a joy for, uh, for, for my wife and I to be able to say to our sons when they've asked us, Hey, did you guys have sex before you got married? It's a joy to be able to tell them we did not. We didn't have sex with each other before we got married. Why? Well, because we had a different set of lenses. And we didn't let culture or the latest hip-hop song shape us. We allowed scripture to shape us. I remember literally saying to my wife, you know, she'd be over at my house. It's 10 o'clock at night when we were dating and we're playing Monopoly. And I go, I don't want to play Monopoly no more. You got to go home. I won't play Twister or something else. Can I just keep it real? Can I keep it real up in here? And listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not saying that to boast or brag and uh, or any of that stuff. And um, you know, some of you all, you're sitting here. You go, man, I failed in that area. Well, by the grace of God, morning by morning, new mercies you've seen. And the very fact that you're alive today, God's saying you've got another shot. You've got grace. My grace is sufficient. But what I need you to do is put on some glasses and see it differently. Let culture shape you. No, excuse me. Let the word of God shape you, and not culture. This is what he's saying to us here. Or, or I let the word of God inform me and in how I steward money. You ever written a tithe check and as you're writing it, you're going, this is crazy. 10%, that's crazy. That's foolishness to the world. But I let the word of God shape me. And I'm telling you, you read Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. And God says, shall a man rob God? Bring your tithes to the storehouse. One of the ways I know the Bible is true. God says, if you would just honor me with the tithe, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you won't even have room enough to receive. I know that one to be true in my life. But what shapes it is not kind of my own intuition. It's the word of God. It's just seeing it differently. So that's why getting in the word daily. Now, let's move on to number two. Because, because. Hear me. Some of y'all, thank God I ain't heard a word you said when you had them glasses on. Listen to me. This is the dangerous part of the message, right? Because you can leave this message uh, emphasizing, well, okay, um, no more secular music. I'm not going to watch TV. Uh, I'm only going to read my Bible all day. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to do that, do that, do that. Well, now we have to be careful because now you can fall into something called legalism. Right? What is legalism? Legalism happens, here it is, I need you to get this word in your spirit. Legalism happens when I emphasize rules over relationship. That's legalism. Legalism happens when I highlight the prohibitions of God or the prescriptions of God over the person of God. And nothing kills a relationship more than legalism. And this is a wound of mine. I gotta tell you, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up down south. Anybody here grew up in the Bible Belt? 
Yeah, I grew up in I grew, I grew up in the Bible. I grew up down south, and I went I went to one of them churches where you know the pastor he didn't just preach out of a Bible; he preached out of a big old Bible, like one of them big old family Bibles, where you know everybody in your family could have signed off on that thing going back five generations. It was a big old big old Bible, and he'd open this thing up, and I left every message feeling guilt feeling a sense of shame. I heard nothing of grace. I heard nothing of the love of God. It was just do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I remember one time I was like eight years old and I'm sitting in church, listening to the pastor preach. And I remember, I I don't know nothing else. He said in the sermon, all I remember is one line. He said, there's some things wives shouldn't even wear in the bedroom. I was like, really? Eight years old. So at lunch that afternoon, we went to a place called Piccadilly. At Piccadilly that afternoon, sitting there at lunch eating my jello, I said, Dad, let's talk about the sermon. The pastor said, there's stuff. He said, son, we'll talk about that in five years when you turn 13 years of age. But this is what I got, just a steady diet of do this, don't do this, don't do this. And then I went off to Bible college. I went to a fundamentalist Bible college, and I got more legalism. We couldn't go to the movie theater But we could rent rated R movies from Blockbuster. What? When I investigated that, they said, well, actually, the movie theater, we think, is a sinful place. Couldn't play cards. If you got married in the middle of the semester, you had a reception. There could be no dancing at your reception. Legalism. One of our sister schools, um, uh, there was a donor who donated money for the pool. And she stipulated that men and women could not swim together in this pool and if they did she left extra money to fill the pool up with concrete legalism now i know we laugh and chuckle at that but i tell you nothing takes the wind out of christians more than legalism brow beating people with rules Nothing sucks the life out of relationship than this performance-oriented perspective on life. Um, my, my wife and I, we're, we're at, we, we've actually been trying this with our kids. You know, I just remember early on in our parenting years, um, Corey and I going to a parenting seminar, and one of the takeaways we got from it was, you know, we just felt like we were being overbearing with our kids, and uh, we just felt like we just needed to ease up and let the default be Yes. So unless we had a really good reason to say no, we're just going to let a yes slip out of our mouths. Well, then that bled into us just you know, deciding to let our kids wear whatever they want to wear to church. Now, I'm pastoring down south. I just heard my wife grunt. And um, it was some interesting moments. So my oldest would come down on, on Sunday and, you know, God, God bless him. It, it, hygiene. Brushing your teeth, combing your hair, putting some deodorant on. Just didn't mean anything to him. So he, you could smell him at the top of the steps. Just barreling down the steps and stuff that hadn't been washed in a while. Then my middle son, Miles, my creative, he would wear stripes with plaids. And then my youngest son, Jaden, just the athlete, he's always going to wear a jersey to church. Um, He would wear a headband because, you know, know, that was the thing. And then he'd have one of them sleeves on, um, but his arm was too small. So the sleeve would kind of slump down like a grandmama's stocking. And and we're sitting there just kind of 
biting our our knuckles because because my wife is shooting me this look of say something and we're having to just be on one accord and just say, listen, we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, we'll let you come to church, but we're not going to let little pesky rules suck the life out of our relationship. We've all heard of Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, man, he had mind-numbing rules. He spent years of his life in seclusion. He was a germaphobe. If you wanted to see Howard, um, one of his aides would have to knock on the door X amount of times that were specified by Howard. If, if he answered, you then had to take a specified amount of tissues, place them over the doorknob, turn it to a certain degree, and then you'd push it so far to a specified amount, mind-numbing rules. And then on the rare occasion that he did leave the hotel, he had more rules. You could only drive no more than 35 miles per hour. And if you came across railroad tracks, you couldn't go faster than two miles per hour. All of these rules, 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 rules. Well, if you read his biography, you know how many people came to his funeral? Ten. Why? Because you couldn't get to know him because the rules kept you away. I want you to hear what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to what he says. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, he says, so, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You know what he's saying? I want you to live for God, live for God, live for God. He hasn't gotten to the rules yet, but he's saying what is supposed to be front and center is God. God loves you. God created you. God wants a relationship with you. God wants you to communicate with him. God wants you to walk with him and talk with him. God is not worried about your performance ultimately. He's worried about your heart. And if God can get your heart, he'll get your feet. He'll get your conduct. He'll get your giving. But it's all about the heart first. I just want to say this to some of us. Now, some of us are on another extreme. There's no conviction over sin and we take sin lightly. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about the person who's just wallowing in guilt and shame. You need to do for yourself what God in Christ has already done for you. Forgive yourself. Walk boldly with Christ. Live for him. Your sin does not surprise God. He knew about what you did yesterday Thousands of years ago before you did it. And he still says, I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. If all that we have, have ever done is covered by grace. If all of the sin that we have ever committed is covered by grace. If anything of good we will ever do is because of God's grace. Where's the boasting? Where's the shame? It's all grace. So I want you to live for his purpose. Now let's go home on this one. Now he gets the conduct. Look at what he says in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, again, he's talking about unsaved people living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, listen, I don't have time to tease out each of these words. Here's the undercurrent. He's saying people who aren't saved, they live life with no restraint. It's the undercurrent. 
Um, so sensuality, the idea of sensuality is the idea of pleasure, the senses. The idea here is that of hedonism. So people who don't know Christ, if they go, man, I, I want pleasure, I'm going to get pleasure. Uh, people who don't know Christ kind of live life as if it's one big frat party. There's no sense of restraint. Now, here's the problem. In Greco-Roman times, the culture looked at Christianity as kind of this funless, joyless society. They didn't go to gladiatorial games. They didn't go to the theater. Uh, they, they didn't go to pagan um, temples and fraternize with, with, um, with, with the cult pr- prostitutes. They didn't do any of that stuff. They didn't go to the, to the festival of Pan, which 250,000 people would go into Caesarea Philippi every single year. And they'd watch uh, on the stage as the priests would commit acts of bestiality and pedophilia and all this sick stuff. Christians didn't take part in that. And so the culture looked at Christians and said, funless, joyless. Rules, 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 rules. By the way, that's how many people in our culture today look at us. I want to go home today, and this is probably the most profound thought out of this text I can deposit into your spirits today. These rules are not to rob us of our joy. Listen, they are actually given to us to enhance joy. Let's go home on this one. If you've never read this book, I commend it to you. It's a book written by John Piper called Desiring God. His theme in the book is called Christian Hedonism. His major thesis is that Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Don't miss that. Christ is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He actually argues convincingly in this text that Christ is for our joy. Now, this is taken straight from the Bible. I want you to look at this text here with me out of Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, verse 11, For you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. I want you to hear me. God is for your joy. Say that with me. God's for my joy. God is for my joy. He's for it. He want, in fact, what the Christian life argues is the deepest, highest, longest form of joy is actually found in an intimate relationship with Christ. Now these rules come and these rules come not to rob us of our joy, but to actually enhance joy in our lives. In other words, the person who lives with no sense of restraint, who does whatever they want to do, doesn't experience long-term joy. Let me give you two examples of this as we close. Imagine you go to an amusement park you want to ride a roller coaster. When you get on this roller coaster, I want to feel my heart drop to my knees. I want to feel the euphoria of the roller. I know for some of us that ain't fun, but for some of you weird folk, that's fun. You want the joy of the roller coaster. Now imagine you sit down, you get ready to take off of this roller coaster, but they don't strap you in. That little contraption doesn't come over you. They say, you're free. Nothing's holding you back. Is that a recipe for joy? No. What makes the roller coaster exciting and joyful is the very act of restraining you. It is the restraint that enhances joy. 
or this afternoon. I'll sit in my backyard and I'll light a fire and I'll read a book and my boys will do s'mores around that fire and we'll have a wonderful time enjoying that fire. Why? Because it's got boundaries. It's got restraint. It's got borders. Fire in a fire pit or fireplace. Joy. But a boundaryless fire. The very thing that brought you joy is now provoking fear. Why? No boundaries. No restraint at your neighborhood. I've never met a joyful adulterer. I've never met a joyful liar. I I, got to remember everything. When you tell the truth, you can have a bad memory. I've never met a joyful person who spent money the way they wanted to spend it all the time. Said to my kids just the other day, y'all enjoy this house? Yeah, yeah, dad, we enjoy this house. Trying to teach them about money. Well, the reason why you enjoy this house is because mom and dad have good credit. And good credit means that we don't always spend money the way we feel like spending money. And when we get bills, we may not feel like paying off our bills, but we pay off our bills. We exercise restraint. To not exercise restraint may result in momentary euphoria, but it will also result in long-term sorrow. I want you to hear me. Jesus is for your joy, for your joy, for your joy, for your joy. But in order to have maximum joy in Jesus, there has to be seatbelts. There has to be boundaries. These boundaries enhance joy. And then he says this as we close. He says in verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says, listen, 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 listen. Here's what I want you to understand. If you want to experience maximum joy in this life, you have to live with the thought that there will be accountability in the life to come. Watch it. He's not saying this to guilt or shame us. Ooh, I'm going to be called into the principal's office one day, so I better get my act together now. No, what he's saying here is it's actually inspiring because I will give an account in the life to come that actually enhances how I live in this life. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Here is Paul. Paul says it this way. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. He says, there's coming a day when I'll have to give an account. What's the purpose? Therefore, live this life for God's glory. Or consider C.S. Lewis. I love this. One of my favorite quotes of his He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. So what keeps my witness here is this life ain't all there is. This life is not all there is. This life's not all there is. What keeps me a good steward of the gifts that God's given me, the finances he's entrusted in my hands. This life is not all there is. This life is not all there is. I will have to give an account to him. I will behold my maker face to face. You live with that reality. That's going to impact the decisions that you make in this life. Live differently. Think differently. See it differently. Have a different worldview. Have a different purpose. Live for his will. You're living for a purpose, for a person, not for rules. But now there are rules, but those rules are given to enhance your joy in Christ.